0: Okay. Um, Matt, where's Matt at? There's Matt with the microphone. Questions. First off, did I miss any blanks? Did we got the blanks, or did I miss blanks? Oh, okay. Okay, the first two. Promise of an enduring hostility. There are only two races in humanity. 2b hold on let me get there um Abraham Abram is justified when he believes in God's promise concerning his seed okay any other missing blanks okay any general oh Renee
1: yes thank you for this sermon it's amazing because our small group has been we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago mm. like salvation has always been through jesus and we were like struggling with how did they know how did they know yet they seem to look forward to the virgin birth and those verses mm. isaiah 7 because yeah. i couldn't recall any and then john eight fifty six which at one time i recalled but i couldn't that night so I went up to Greg Sweet. I said, did you talk to him about that? He said, no, it just happened. Because <laughs> well, he God. was going to talk to you and just oh, kind of get straight on it so he could let us all know. So, yeah, that was great. Thanks.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and as what I was saying earlier, I'm not for a second saying can prove the virgin birth from Genesis 3.15, but once you know about the virgin birth and you go back, in the same way that once you know about the Trinity and you go back and God's saying, let us, I'm like, oh, okay. The seed of the woman, which is an odd expression, makes a bit more sense. We're like, okay, this is going to be a... Spe- and God's going to keep... We'll see this next week even. Keep unique, interesting, remarkable, miraculous women having births is going to be a consistent theme moving forward. It's not So it's not going to be surprising. Well, the virgin birth is surprising. It's going to fit in a wide prophetic pedigree of strange births, unusual births. You know, you think of Samuel or Samson or... John the Baptist yeah. or any of the, you know, it, God setting a pattern of this in place. Okay. And, now, oh, go, go, go.
1: Isaiah, when, when was that written?
0: Isaiah, I think, is about 400 years before. No, it's a little more than 400. Um, you have know, got a study Bible with dates. I don't off the top of my head know the dates.
1: Oh, okay.
0: Someone's got to have a study Bible that says Isaiah what? Seven. Isaiah seven. But just 14. the introduction to Isaiah, they're going to give you a date. Anybody? Mark, you got the date? No? Anybody? I'm looking it up just a minute. <laughs> uh, when it was written. Yeah, we're looking for a century. I mean... I, I, uh,
2: it's like 7th century BC. Well, you
0: got 400 years. Uh, okay, so okay, Isaiah Propheside about 740.
2: 740. 700
0: BC, okay, so, okay, 740. 740, we're yeah.
1: 700. Yeah, yeah. So do you think at that point, no? Because you said Abraham when he... Um, Took Isaac up, he, he already saw
0: clearly. Well, whether or not he saw that. it, I think, I think, and I think the significance in naming the place God will provide, yeah. Abraham's putting more together than simply this. There's an yeah. enduring God will provide that, that he gets. And K- Walt Kaiser, in his very, if you want a really helpful book on messianic theology in the Old Testament, Walt Kaiser's mm-hmm. The Messiah in the Old Testament, excellent read, very helpful. And so Kaiser's asking the question when Jesus says in John, He rejoiced to see my day. Well, how much information did Abraham have? He didn't have Sinai. He didn't have the Ten Commandments. He didn't have all that. He just has the events of God revealing himself in his own life. He has maybe uh, some oral reports from the garden um, that have been passed down. And so it, it really does seem as though the event on Mount Mor- Mor- Moriah was a big deal. Um, and he names the place, God will provide a lamb. And so Kai- I'll read Kaiser's quote again. Um, I can find it. I had so many pieces of paper out there with me this morning okay um, Abraham presumed presumably believed God would raise slain Isaac from the dead Um for he distinctly told the men accompanying him to wait at the foot of the hill, for he and the boy would go and worship in return. God instead provided a substitute, a ram caught in the thicket, which appeared as God called a halt to the test. That is why Abraham named the place Yahweh-Jirah, the Lord will provide. In other words, Abraham saw that God himself would provide a substitute, someone in that coming seed who would somehow be connected with the sacrifice deliverance of Isaac the son of promise so he sees this is a God's teaching me something God's going to call him, and in a sense as much as we may cringe at the sacrifice of Isaac Isaac as a sinner Abraham as a sinner putting to death God has the right to do that um, and yet God then provides a substitute here's another significant point that I didn't bring up in the message because you don't know this back in Genesis but could anyone maybe if any of you have been moonlighting in Jake's class I know he spent a Sunday dealing with this where is, what is Jesus, the Son of God, what is the second member of the Trinity doing in the Old Testament? Because he's there. What's he doing? What role does he take in the Old Testament? Creation. What name might you spot him as? Angel of the Lord. Angel of the Lord. So who is it that speaks to Abraham and stays his hand? But the very one who would be the substitute. Now, you don't know that reading Genesis. You got to wait till you get to the New Testament. But then going back, the one who himself would be the Lamb of God tells him, Stop, God's there's a Lamb. I mean, isn't that I mean it's just it's remarkable that Abraham wouldn't know that. But we putting it to, Yeah, if you uh, basically the angel of the Lord, even in our text, the angel of the Lord he's, he's distinct from God, and yet he starts talking like he's God. And he gets worshipped Samson's mother Worships him As does Samson's father And we're going to die We've seen God But yeah If you go to Genesis 22 You even see that same overlap That the angel of the Lord Appears to be He's separate from the Lord God But he's Talks like he's God It's Here let me get there Genesis 22 There we go Okay um, look at verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have d- done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sands of the seashore, as your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they went from Beersheba. So he's talking for God. And then we, putting the puzzle together even further, realize is this is pre-incarnate Christ talking. Um, it's also pre-incarnate Christ at the burning bush um, and so on. But, yeah, the angel of the Lord, unless, unless the Trinity is a quadrinity, the angel of the Lord, by exclusion, must be pre-incarnate Christ. And once Jesus comes to earth, the angel of the Lord disappears from the biblical narrative. Um, so by sound and necessary deduction we conclude they're one and the same person um which then explains what activity what ministry jesus is doing in the old testament um he wouldn't be he's named jesus at birth the person we call jesus is in the old testament identified as the angel of the lord um but anyway i don't want to go too off tangent on that but it's just another sort of oh that's cool you know um okay other questions thought yes Oh no, microphone, microphone. In first John, I think it is,
2: it says in the beginning was the word. Yes. And that's capitalized.
0: <laughs> Isn't that the name of the second person of the Trinity? And Jesus didn't come until a specific time, give his name Jesus. Right. Jesus and is the name says, of the in- Jesus is the name of the incarnated second member of the Trinity. Yeah.
2: And it, It also says in a number of places
0: today, you know, I'm proud of, uh, this person today. I have become your father because the second person in the Trinity didn't need a father. It's always been there. Well, he's, he's in John. We can talk. I'll give you a short answer now. We can talk more afterwards in John five. Jesus makes it clear. The father son relationship of the father and son pre-exists the incarnation, um, John 5, 28. For as the Father has life in himself, he has given the Son also to have life in himself. Uh, we, we can talk about it. Jesus, I, I believe in the eternal sonship of Christ. I know there are some. John MacArthur switched his view on this. I know that. So this isn't like a heretical, non-heretical thing. I do believe the eternal sonship, that, that um, Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He is the man God, the God-man at the incarnation but we can talk more afterwards that's that's beyond the scope of this morning's message but yeah other questions or thoughts okay linda
3: okay so first just to clarify uh, i read a little further in my isaiah yeah it says that he most likely wrote the first 39 chapters not long after seven oh one BC and then forty through sixty six chapters in his later years. So okay. just sir sort of,
0: Okay. I was just looking for a rough century okay. marker. Okay. okay. It was a Thursday. Overcast. No. Nope. No, 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 no. Yeah.
3: Okay. So my question is can you reconcile yeah. Genesis twenty two one with James one thirteen?
0: Sure. James 1.13, God himself tempts, no, no one say when he's being tempted and being tempted by God, for God himself tempts no one. In the James, well, part of the problem is that the Greek word parosmos um, can mean test or temptation. Um, it's used both ways in chapter one, count it all joy, my, breth- various breth- my brethren, when you encounter various parosmoi, trials or temptations, right? Okay. Um, and in the, in the the, it means either one. It doesn't mean both. Either trial or temptation, context gives you the meaning. So when I'm to say I'm being tempted by God, I'm not to say that because he makes it clear. My own desires, my own lusts are what are tempting me, right? So in this place, testing Abraham, he's not tempting him. He's testing him. The spirit, I mean, I'd go to John, Luke 4. The spirit of God drives Jesus into the wilderness. Why? To be tested. Now, Satan does the tempting, but God is sovereign over the testing, if that makes any sense. Um, so, the point being in James, God Himself is never the one whispering in your ear, going "sin, sin, sin, right. sin." It's your desires, it's your own lusts, it, or it could be Satan Himself, as we see we're battling in Ephesians. But God absolutely ordains that testing happen. Absolutely, Jesus is ordained to be tested, and God's testing Abraham. Um, and I could point to many other passages. So, th- do you see any more that needs to be reconciled than that, or?
3: Okay, so because God allowed Satan to tempt Job. Yes. But yet...
0: The Lord gave, the Lord took away, and in all this Job did not sin with his lips. So God's sovereign enough over the the tempting of Job that Job can say, God did this. And sure, meaning the right thing, God absolutely did. The the, the narrator interjects himself, lest we think Job's mistaken. No, in all this Job didn't sin with his lips or or credit God with wrong, right? right? So, yeah, spoken in the right sense. Well, what I'm never to do is justify my sin because God made me do it. I'm never to say, the Lord tempted me. Right. No, my own desires did it.
3: Right, okay, um, so then in, in Genesis 22 then, so what would Abraham's desire be there to not sacrifice his son? Yeah,
0: what do I value more, my son or my God? Will he evidence the character of the God he worships? He will give up his son, or really not do that. And he trusts God. And, and it's even a bigger quandary because this command would appear to nullify something God previous. I mean, there, it's worse than we think because just the thought of having one of my children might die, right, is, is a terrible thought. Um, and on top of that, obeying this command would seem to contradict the promise, no, through Isaac. Because remember, first, he's just like, let Eliezer of Damascus be my... No, it'll be, it'll be one of your own genetic kids. Okay. Ishmael. Oh, the Ishmael. Is, no, it's going to be Isaac. Through Isaac will your posterity be named to go kill Isaac. And Abraham thinks, I guess he's going to have to raise her from the dead then. That's the only way I can imagine that God's not a liar and that he's given me this command. Well, that's not what happened. But as the author of Hebrew says, metaphorically, he did receive him back from the dead in a manner of speaking. Um, so... The test is, do you trust God? I mean, that's why it's such a picture of faith. I don't know what God's doing. I don't understand how he could say this and say this. But I'm going to trust him and obey. That's, that's faith right there. Um, that is the epitome of faith. And Abraham unknowingly is modeling the God he's going to worship. No, Abraham, it won't be you giving your son. It'll be me giving my son, right? Right. Um, that's what he's setting up. And Abraham, that, that penny drops enough that he names the place the Lord will provide a lamb. And as Kaiser points out, that's probably the clearest glimpse he has of the coming Messiah and what the coming Messiah will do. So when Jesus says in John 8, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, it probably is projecting from Mount Moriah. I just also think it's really cool that the very mountain Abraham is offering Isaac is where the temple is going to be built in the second. You know, it's. it's uh, it's remarkable how God is setting things up, you know? Okay. Does that answer your question or you got more? Yeah, well, I have another Oh, one, go, go. One, go. Okay. It's just The mic's just going to go back and forth in the front row. This is fantastic. Come on, go. Oh, no, it's Renee's, I have, Renee's I up. I okay. comment
1: on that very thing because can you think of anywhere else in the Bible that um, God asks a person to do something that previously he said
0: don't do? Well, he didn't previously say don't do.
1: Oh, he hadn't at that point. No, no, stuff. no. It's
0: going to come later in the law, in Deuteronomy, oh. that, that God's going to say, Don't you dare offer your children up okay. to Molech. Don't okay. you dare offer your children. Okay. So, no, God Good has point. never Good said point. this.
1: Okay.
0: Um, later, he's going to make it. But we know reading this. Wait a second. God hates child sacrifice, he abominates yes, it. Yes. Um, we know that. But Abraham, I mean, that's, that's the other remarkable thing about Abraham. Abraham has no antecedent scripture. Right. He, he has, at most, oral reports. Um, which likely existed because, I mean, we're not too many generations from the Ark, really. Um, and Noah's dad would have known potentially Adam. I mean, that's, we're not that far removed. But so he, he may know some of these promises. He may know some of what's happened. But he is really learning the character of God as he goes, which I think is part of some of the what looks to us almost like theater. I mean, God's testing Abraham. What, is God learning something? I think, actually, Abraham's going to learn something about God. Or when God says, let's go down to Sodom and see. see. But I think the point is, we know shock and awe and destruction is going to fall down to Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham, I think, part of the reason God goes through this and he has the negotiation, what if it was 50? What if it was 40? What if it was 10? Is Abraham is learning through God's action what he's like. God is not capricious. God is not some Canaanite deity who gets really upset and flies off the handle. A full investigation was done. There was an opportunity for a defense attorney to negotiate. I mean, all of this Abraham's learning, even though his intercession for Sodom is unsuccessful, here's a God who will hear intercession. Here's a God who is not freaking out, losing his temper. This is a measured act of justice, right? So all of this Abraham's learning as God acts and reveals himself to him, um, so that's the other thing to consider when we're reading this: is Abraham doesn't know much about this God. So constantly, God's revealing His character and who He's like. The first thing Abraham latches onto is this God tells the truth. I mean, that's that's the that's the part that really he latches onto. God promised me this, and He doesn't lie. And I think that's ultimately at the heart of faith: will we trust and believe what God has said, or not? And Abraham is the man of faith, and he's the the model of faith, because God tells him a bunch of really hard to believe things, and Abraham believes them. So, no, he hadn't said that yet, but he will say that. Thank you. Oh, Linda, back to Linda. Excuse
3: me. Okay, so uh, when you were talking about, I mean, we know, we know that Satan wants to be worshiped like God, or even more than God. So would you say that Revelation thirteen three is kind of him trying to um, copy or replicate um, what is said in Genesis three fifteen about the deadly blow?
0: I was prepping for Genesis, not Revelation, this morning. But okay, Genesis.
3: You refer to Uh,
0: Revelation. I do. Yes. Okay. Three. Revelation 3, what? 13, 3. 13. It
3: says, one of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast.
0: Quite possibly. Quite possibly. It's also possible that Satan is trying to imitate or ape the resurrection of Jesus. I, too, have somebody who was dead and came back to life. I, too, have somebody on my team who is a Messiah figure. I don't know. That's my not prepared punting answer. Um, okay, any non front row questions because I know these no no, no, it's great, it's great, but I know these ladies will keep us going. okay You're in the front row. Oh, okay <laughs> any any other any other questions um, or thoughts on this. Okay, give it back to the front row then, I guess. You got more? Cynthia.
1: Okay, so as far as um, Abraham doing what he did and and he he was faithful to God, um, I have used um, knowing Scripture and, like, sometimes we are prompted by the Holy Spirit and sometimes... Um, it's not the Holy Spirit. Right. And the way to test that is, does this line up with Scripture? Yeah. And so I guess just a warning that, yeah. that's, that we wouldn't do. Yeah, let me, let me, let me, let me, this.
0: let me, yeah, absolutely. And this is an important point to make even when you're dealing with other religions. It is interesting to note that other religions teach things that are corrupt or false, but at the end of the day, it comes down to truth, right? In other words, uh, you can critique say, Islam or Mormonism on, on polygamy, right? But that isn't a foundational way to critique it, because if God said that, it's fine. I mean, you got to deal with Genesis 22, where God tells Abraham to offer up Isaac, and the, the $8 million question is, did God really tell you that? If God really did tell you that, then grabbing your kid and going up to Mount Moriah is a godly, righteous thing that's going to echo in Scripture as a praiseworthy event. If God didn't, stop that man. You know, I mean, like, right, it's terrible, and so as you, can, you can critique his, well, how can a religion send hijackers to crash planes into buildings? If God told him to do it, if their, if their foundational premise is true, God spoke through Allah, I mean, Allah spoke through Muhammad, then that's no more crazy or extreme than Genesis 22. The issue comes down to truth and lies. Is the Quran true? Is Muhammad a true prophet? It's, it's not enough to simply point at the fruit of the tree and say that's not pretty because the per- if I were i just turn right around and say, yeah, well, what about Genesis 22? Or what about the Amalekites? Or what about these people God told the Old Testament Israel to wipe out? It comes down to, did God say? It comes down to, is it true or not? If it's true, you trust God and you let the chips fall where they may. Um, in one sense, Islam is frightening from how much faith they... The issue comes down to truth and lies. The men who flew planes on September 11th had a lot of faith. I'm just saying they had faith in lies. That's, that's a critical issue. But absolutely, they had two doubts they believed what they said they believed. You know, um, they just weren't trusting the truth. So it, it, you've got to ultimately lay the root to the acts, and the foundational issue is what it's Genesis 3. Has God said? Did God really say? I mean, that's what we're debating over is the Word of God. So, yeah, if you want to claim revelations from God, you better be right. God spoke to Abraham, and I have no doubt God can be persuasive. That Ab- How did Abraham know it was God? I don't know. If God wants to make it clear, it's him. I'm sure he's able. Um, you, but if you, if people today want to say it, they better be right. That's all I can say. And now that we have more Scripture, we can compare it to that. Um, I, I mean, I've never experienced God audibly talking. I've never credibly heard of it happening today. But he can do what he wants. He's He's... He's free. He, he's he's, but you better be right, <laughs> and it better match with everything else God has said. Um, yeah. Other, anything with that? Okay. What's your next question, Linda? <laughs> good. Oh, you're good. Okay. She's good. No, good. Oh, she. Oh, sorry. I mean, there's only I one who's good. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Okay. 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 Yeah. No, let me, let me read you a little further about Cain. I, I had to cut this out for time as well. But what's remarkable is it appears, I read two different guys. My Hebrew is weak. I, I kept my Greek up, but my Hebrew is pretty pathetic. But both Walt Kaiser and um, Edmund Clowney in his book, uh, Unfolding Mystery, point out what the, sig- the potential significance of Eve naming Cain as she does. I'll read a quote, from again, from Kaiser. <clears throat> Um, some hint of what these early mortals may have understood from the announcement that God makes in Genesis 3.15 is evident in Eve's response after she had given birth to her first son. She named him Cain and explained, I have gotten, the verb gotten sounds like Cain, a man, adding, even the Lord. This is the way Luther rendered the appositional clause that came at the end of the verse. Such a translation is possible, for there is no word help as most modern versions generally render it with the help of the Lord. So a literal and, and literal is not always preferable. You, you, you got to get idioms and figures of speech, but literal, a literal reading of the Hebrew is I have gotten a man, the Lord. Then you got to figure out how do you make sense of that? So you can add in even making it clear. It's renaming. I've gotten a man specifically the Lord, or most of our modern translations with the help of the Lord, understanding the relationship to be by or through agency. But if it's the other way, which is how Luther took it, Kaiser's taking it, um, Clowney takes it, then if this suggestion is correct, then Eve understood that the promised male descendant of uh, human descendant would be in some way divine, the Lord. If so, Eve's instincts about the Messiah were correct, but her timing was way off. But how, but how tragic, you know, she's she's excited God's promise to fix humanity through her seed, through her kid's. And she gets her firstborn son. Maybe this is the one who's going to crush the serpent's head. Maybe this is the one who's going to set everything right. This is the one who murders his brother. And the dawning realization that it's not, she's going to produce a, um, a line of snake killers. But somehow, the snake's children are in her own children, right? I mean, that, that's just got to... And again, the, the, moving forward, as Jesus makes it clear that you're ultimately a descendant of Abraham through being a person of faith, it's not to, this is important, it's not to remove the genetic issues. The, the genealogy is it clear the Bible is concerned with descent. It matters that Jesus is a physical descendant of Eve and of David, right? It's not to remove that. But even more significant on top of that is. Your, your Jesus, Jesus' point, he makes the point in John 8, yeah, I know, genetically you're descended from Abraham, but you're not acting like Abraham. You're acting like your dad was somebody else. There's somebody else who's a liar and a murderer from the beginning, and you're acting an awful lot like him. Your father's the devil, right? That That's his argument. Um, we, we tend to think primarily of genetics, like CSI. So when Jesus says, um, blessed are the peacemakers, they'll be called sons of God, he's not teaching justification by peacemaking or adoption by peacemaking. What he's saying is you act like your dad when you make peace because God's a peacemaker. And you know, we have the same expression like chip off the old block, father like father like son. Is that type of thinking. Um, and so Jesus is not, when he calls the, the, the Jews sons of the devil, he's not impugning their mother. He's not suggesting something happened in their conception. They, they get it. You're acting like the devil family. You know, there's a Hebrewism, a son of worthlessness, son of Belial, and Carson explains it this way: it's like saying you're so utterly worthless. The only possible way to explain it is that you're part of the worthless family. Yeah, you know, that's the type of idea being conveyed: son of worthlessness, or son of destruction, or other phrases like that, and that's the idea um, being being portrayed. Okay. Other thoughts, questions we got 20 minutes, people. Come on. i I got some more places I can go with this, but um, anything else? Alex needs a microphone. He's coming. I'm picking up people in my classes. nice. All right. Not so much a
2: question, just a oh, statement. Oh, not a question. Just a statement. I had never seen that connection before between you know, Abraham did see the day of Christ. And I thought that was a cool connection. So oh,
0: thank you. Thank you. No, I, I, I thought that I hadn't even considered that too, again, until Kaiser pointed it out. he's like, what exactly could A how much, how many Lego, think of Lego bricks, how many Lego bricks did Abraham have to piece together? And the fact that it goes on to say, he named the place, God, it seems that left a big impact in Abraham. And as soon as Abraham does this, all these promises about seeds start coming out. I'll oh, bless your seed and your seed will be, I mean, you know, God's response to that. So, yeah, that, yeah, that was, that was a cool, I thought that was a cool connection as well. And that's part of why I wanted to do this, was just like, there's so, I mean, we're just two people along the line, and yet this is, there's so much going on. It is so rich. The other thing is, as I study the Bible, the part that I most recently, the most consistently blows me away is the beauty. There's clearly one mind at work in all of Scripture, you know, so you read Genesis and you read the New Testament quoting it and you it, the, the 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 one mind that stands behind all these human authors becomes clearer and clearer as you see New Testament uses of the Old Testament, Old Testament develops of things. And so um it, it's it's remarkable the the beauty of scripture and the way God unfolds things. Um so yeah. Any other oh, who's in the who You, Renee, front row. Here we go again. Okay, okay. There we go. That's good. That's good.
1: Okay, so um, can you just clarify, because a lot of people are confused that salvation has always been through Christ, and just clarify how maybe that was different for them in the Old Testament than it is for us now.
0: Sure. Um, Some people have argued that salvation was always by faith in Jesus. I think... Personally, that goes a little further than I could back up scripturally. I would say salvation has always been by faith, not a- apart from works, and always faith in God's revelation. You go to, if you go to Hebrews 11, and we won't do this now, but test me on this. All the people lift it up as um, by faith. God spoke, they responded in faith. It was never by intuition. So God said something. So, like, what does Joseph get marked for as his act of faith in, in Hebrews 11? Does anyone know? Is it resisting Potiphar's wife? No. Is it interpreting the dreams? No. What event, what act did Joseph do that marks him a man of faith? He spoke of his bones. When I die. No, but what's the significance? No, no, pause. What's the, in other words, he's responding to what God had said, not directly about the Messiah. I mean, if the people want to say he's always faith in the coming Messiah, okay, maybe. I think that I couldn't prove that biblically. It's possible what I do know is it's always in response to what God said. God says when people, I speak and people respond to what I say in faith, I am pleased with that. Um, Now this side of the cross, it's very clear. You're not, it's not to be trusting in any, just anything God has said. Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians 15, that the message of the cross, the gospel is a matter of first importance. Um, But prior to the cross, I'm not convinced it was any, any particular thing that God has said. So in, in Joseph's case, his family cast him out and f- sold him into slavery. And Egypt took him in. And even though he gets off to a rocky start, eventually he's the second most powerful man in Egypt. And Joseph actually had so adopted the culture of Egypt that his brothers don't recognize him. He's not, you know, he's not looking like a Jew. He's married the high priest's daughter, And so if any man ever could have changed his allegiance, you know what? Egypt took care of me, and Egypt has honored me. My family cast me out. So when Joseph says, hey, when I die, I know, and he knows this because of what God said to Abraham. Remember, we read in in, um, Genesis 17, they will serve for 400 years. So Joseph knows, even though the scripture hasn't been written, this is all orally transmitted, but Joseph knows what God said to Abraham. And he knows that they're only going to be in Egypt for a time. And he says, you better take my bones with you. Why? Because he's seeing beyond that to the resurrection. And to quote, I forget who I'm quoting. So I did not come up with this. But it's just cool. Joseph is in effect saying, I want my first step in the resurrection better be in the promised land. When I'm raised from the dead, I, better, I want to be in the land. He's making it clear. I'm, I'm putting my lot with God's promises in the land he promised you. Now, that, I think, signifies some serious faith. But he's trusting what God said. God said, I'm going to give you a land. Egypt's given him a land. He doesn't have to look with eyes of faith to see the reward of Egypt. And he's, no. First and foremost, I value and trust the promises of God. That's what I want. You take my box of bones, my ossuary, up with you when you go. Because you surely will go. And you bury me there. So in each instance, in Hebrews 11, God speaks, people respond in faith. That has always been the basis of salvation. Always, always, always. N- n- with the clarity we have now, this side of the cross, um, I, I, one of, we used to do our Tough Men classes here, I haven't done them in a while. I would challenge people t- to write down the irreducible gospel. And what I meant by that is supporting it biblically, What? not that we want to minimize, what is the least amount of content Person has to believe to be saved. What or what are the parts of the gospel you cannot get wrong? Um, what What are the doctrines so prime and primary that to to not believe them or to deny them puts you outside the camp? Well, certainly. So you got to start thinking biblically. So Paul makes it clear: if you deny justification by faith, you're accursed, severed from Christ. Right. So we're looking for that type of support. Well, in John eight, Jesus says, "Unless you believe that I am, you'll die in your sins." The deity of Christ is, is, I think, critical. The humanity of Christ, according to 1 John 2, um, whoever denies that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, right? So the identity of Jesus, salvation through his work, he's divine, he's the son of God, he's the son of man, um, faith alone, the resurrection, we're justified. These are the crucial pieces. As much as I hold to inerrancy... I wouldn't put that within that inner circle. I I think that people who are Jesus' sheep will hear his voice and his word, but I wouldn't make subscribing to the doctrine of inerrancy necessarily an in-out decision. I think it frequently reveals sheeps and goats pretty clearly, Um, but I wouldn't make that even a first-order issue, where I would, justification of my faith, the deity, the humanity of Jesus. um, And so these become crucial content that a person has to believe, the death, the resurrection, you know, First Corinthians fifteen that Jesus Christ died according to the scriptures; He was raised again according to the scriptures. That's the critical information that people have to believe upon. That information was not remotely clear in the Old Testament. Um, you know. any thoughts on that? Am I saying something controversial? I wouldn't. Fun- did, did Abraham believe in the Trinity? No, I'm not talking about Abraham. Like, no. I would. I would put the. Tr- I would put the Trinity as a doctrine. There are a couple of doctrines that I'd want to speak of negatively. If you understand and deny them, you can't be saved. But I don't think for a second, enough, what text would you point to that demands acknowledging the Trinity, subscribing to the Trinity to be saved? I can't think of any. Um, so I would put it in that category. Um, and I'd press it out more. Jesus' sheep hear his voice. Here's what the scripture says. But I'd have plenty of, to, I'd have plenty of room for someone who's really confused about the Trinity. I don't understand. Um, I'd have plenty of room for that. Somebody who's taught, understood, sees it, and rejects it. But I'd base that more along the lines of, you're not acting like Jesus' sheep because you're not hearing his voice and his word. I, oh, I know I might be saying something that the Reformed crowd's not going to like, but... Um, I just don't see Abraham believing in the Trinity. Everyone's like, it's got to be Trinitarian. Like, yeah, where's, where's that the test? Yeah. Oh, no, no, microphone, 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 microphone.
2: So the question is then, kind of how do you, how far do you, can you press that out before you've gone too far? Because you said, um, uh, so by faith alone yeah. in Christ's death, and yeah. but that was a trinitarian act because the Father sent Christ, yeah. the Spirit raised him. So, you know how much of that that great exchange can you understand without the Trinity?
0: Oh, I, I you're you're asking consistently. Oh no, I, I don't think you can put the puzzle pieces together in any consistent manner apart from that. I'm just leaving plenty of room for inconsistency and confusion right. on people's part, um, which is why I'm saying if somebody studied and rejects it. But see, that's, again, I'm going to more be like, I don't think they're a Christian primarily because they've looked in God's word, they've been taught it, it's clear, they see it, and they reject it. But I'd say that about anything, whether you rejected marriage or or gender or sexuality. I come to the same conclusion along the same lines. Um, No, no, find me the text, push back. But unless you believe the Father sent me, you will die, I'm not aware of that text. Maybe it's there. I mean, just because I don't know if it doesn't mean it's not, but I'm trying to think of the really strong statements. Unless you believe that I am, you will die. So here is necessary content, right? Um, if you accept circumcision, you are severed from Christ, cut off. I mean, I'm looking for that type of language. Um, and so, sure, of logical necessity, this only fits together this way, but I got all sorts of room for confused people. Um, it's, it's how I fit C.S. Lewis in, you know? He's got all sorts of confused ideas. No, I get trouble because C.S. Lewis didn't land firmly on substitutionary atonement. But he does say, I'm not sure how, but somehow Jesus' death squares me with God. I'm like, you know what? I, I think that I'll—it's not my job to judge. But I look at that, I'm like—I I was, I was reading one of his biographies, and I was really blessed that he admitted that. Because certainly if you're familiar with the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the, the version of the atonement he presents there is the medieval ransom view that the payment's being made to Satan, not the father, right? Right. Right. And he definitely liked that, you know? Um, And in a weak sense, when we talk about being bought out of the slave market of sin, that does, that picture would fit sort of like with that ransom view. But I was really encouraged to hear Lewis say, I don't have a firm, I don't have a firm conviction on this. I'm not sure exactly what it works. I just know that because Jesus died, I can be right with God. I'm like, okay. I, I <laughs> No, because if he like studied it and landed on it, it's absolutely this ransom payment, I'd be really troubled with it. okay, how are you getting the, the atonement wrong? But for him to admit I have questions about the atonement, I got a lot more room for that than I would otherwise. Zeb is Oh, oh,
2: I was just going to make a, a note that with Lewis his background was in medieval yeah. literature. Yeah. So that was the lart. that was the yeah. to avoid a I was going to to use a pun, that's the lion's share of his um <laughs> <laughs> of his, I was I was yeah, I caught yeah. it and I was trying to avoid yeah. it but then it was already almost out. Anyway, that was the lion's share of his background yeah. in regards to his um view of the atonement of yeah. like really of theology as a whole, which is why I think it's with Lewis, it's way better to think of him as a philosopher yeah. than a
0: theologian. No, no, absolutely. And Lewis certainly didn't hold to inerrancy. I mean, and I've profited immensely from much of Lewis's writing. I think there's plenty of fish, you know, to, to eat before you spit out the bones, but yeah, you know, he's hardly Orthodox. Um, so, so Yeah. Okay, we got off on this gospel summary tangent, but that's fine. Any other questions? Long time, ten minutes. Any other questions? Sorry, we're <laughs> gonna get you. Wrong. We just gotta get you a dedicated. We Sorry. gotta get a dedicated mic for the front right here. We'll be good. It'll be good. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Okay, John eight fifty six. Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Um, I'm having trouble reconciling. Um, Yes. In the Old Testament, they didn't know specifically the gospel, how things would happen, when Jesus would be born by who, and and that he would die on the cross, etc. But when it comes right down to it... How were the people in the Old Testament saved? I
0: oh, mean, the, by the application of Christ's death. Yes, that's no, what no, I was no, looking no, no. for. Yes. Okay. I'm just okay. talking more to what did they have to understand.
1: Right. Of course, no, they
0: no, no. didn't understand it No, no, no. No, let me ask. Now I know what you're trying to get at. Yes.
1: <laughs> yes. Okay. Hallelujah.
0: How was God <laughs> able to not judge David? Because Christ's death. Yes. Um, go to Romans 3. I'll, I'll, let's look at Thank this. Thank you. Romans people 3. People
1: are confused about this. Okay.
0: Long-time no, Romans, Romans 3 is, is clear on this point. Um, in fact, uh, Piper has a message about this and the problem of evil, for whom did Christ die? And you can answer that question a number of ways, but he answers it here based on this text, for God. Um, we, we think of the problem of evil primarily as why do good, bad things happen to all these good people I know? Paul's going to deal with the problem of evil exactly the opposite. How can God actually claim to be just? How can God actually claim to be righteous? And any one of us get a moment's reprieve from hell? And the answer is Jesus Christ, that's how. So let me show you. Um, 321. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now look at this. Whom God put forward as a propitiation, which is a big SAT word for that which absorbs, removes, or takes away wrath. It's a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. So Jesus dies in some sense to demonstrate God's righteousness. What do you mean? Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. So Jesus dies publicly to vindicate God's righteousness in not damning Abraham and David and all the Old Testament saints to hell. So in a very real sense, not in a very, absolutely, Jesus' death is the only reason Abraham isn't in hell. David's not in hell. He did this because he had formerly passed over sin. So Jesus' public death vindicates God's past passing over of sin. Here, Piper uses this analogy. Imagine you're Uriah the Hittite's father. And you find out that David murdered your son and stole his wife. And imagine you're either standing by in the court or you hear a word from the court when Nathan shows up. David confesses. You know what the law says. Such a person has to be put to death. You shed the blood of man by man, your blood will be shed. You're not going to die, says Nathan. And you can imagine if that was your son and your daughter in law, how angry you might be. What, what do you mean? I've forgiven him. What are you talking about? Well, imagine Uriah lives to see the day where the Son of God's hanging on a cross. It's as though God could say to Uriah and everyone else who might possibly challenge his righteousness. You know, you just, I thought you were a righteous God. You let murderers and adulterers and wife-stealers go free? Huh. No, Uriah, here. Here is why I can forgive David. It vindicates God's righteousness. So, so Jesus dies, according to verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, this was to show, to demonstrate, to reveal God's righteousness because in his forbearance he had passed over previous sins. So we are to understand Jesus' death has always been the basis upon which God doesn't judge sin in man. Um, absolutely. If that's what you're getting at, amen. Zeb, Zeb, oh, Hebrews 10. Hebrews ten. What 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 part of Hebrews ten? Get him, Mike. So, in
2: regards to um, the the efficacy of the old oh, yeah. covenant um, uh, sacrifices, that's it's explicitly we're explicitly told in Hebrews that they did Not. nothing inherently. Yeah. yeah. Um, so in Hebrews 10, speaking of the sacrifices and Christ's superiority to it, uh, starting in verse 3, but in the, these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible, impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Um, he goes on and then in verse 10 um, It says, uh, and by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for For all, all. um, completely like just wiping off the, off the entire concept that the sacrifices, the sacrificial system of the old Testament of the old covenant was what was, what, um, propitiated sinful people.
0: Right. Let me run with that. Let's go to Psalm 51. We'll close on this. Using David as our example and the, uh, killing Uriah and stealing his wife. In Psalm 51, David's psalm of confession, pretty remarkable. Not only does David repent, write this song, he then publishes it publicly and makes it part of Israel's songbook with the title to remind Israel that their king is a murdering adulterer. That's hallmarks of some pretty sincere repentance, right? Um And David recounts his his repentance, and he cries out to God this psalm that he wrote. And what's remarkable is, I'll jump ahead to verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it, You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. Pause. David is not saying the hundreds of pages of Mosaic Law dedicated to the sacrificial system are bad and need to get torn out. What I think he is saying is you can't look up in the Mosaic Law what sacrifice you need to offer when you kill a man and steal his wife. Well, that's going to be, no, there is no sacrifice. The sacrificial system doesn't deal with that sort of thing, and David gets it. David understands the law of Moses sits upon another covenant. And so David goes deeper. Look at verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's what David knows he needs to do is is absolute broken repentance before God. Then do good design and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices. So it's not that David's saying because the sacrificial system doesn't really deal with sin, I can ignore it. What he's saying is, <laughs> I need something deeper, stronger, and more real. I need God to create a new heart in me. I need to be abased and broken before God. Then, once God has received and forgiven me, then I'll be happy to go and do those things the law tells me to do and make those sacrifices. But David gets that it's not these heifers and bulls that are somehow making him acceptable before God. You, you, compared to a broken spirit and a contrite heart, you don't care about those things. What you want is that. So it's, it's helpful to see, not only does the author of Hebrews say that, but it's evident that guys like David understood that too. Back, this isn't some mystery hidden in the New Testament. David gets it. Anyway, Godspeed, God bless, have a Merry Christmas, and uh, continue to be in prayer for the Rolacs and for uh, the Andresses and for uh, the Stringers and others. Thank you.